millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How you doing there? It is David. It's the podcast. We're in lockdown. Man, the strangest thing about this is, had you told us, remember back in early March, when Varadkar came out onto the lawn, I think it was the White House, and said we're locking down. Most of us thought three weeks, four, five, not really having ever dealt with a pandemic before in our lifetime. If you'd said that we're going into lockdown mark two, just before Halloween, I think a lot of people would say snap out of it. But that's where we are. And uh, you know the drill. The podcast is trying to make sense of the world, make that economics part of the world that little bit more comprehensible. And we really need that at this stage. If you do like the podcast, give us a follow on Patreon not just to give John Davis a dig out, who clearly needs it all the time, but also also for yourself right. to actually learn economics. We've got all sorts of tutorials and stuff. And in actual fact, this podcast is going to be a bit policy wonkish. It's going to be a bit heavy in the economics. And we're going to split it into two parts. One is a discussion with me and Paul McCulley before I talk to John. And then second is John coming back and saying, okay, you two have had a nerd fest. Now, please make this yeah. intelligible De-nerded. for the average. De-nerded. De-nerded. Johnny boy, what's the crack, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I, I, to be honest, I'm absolutely... You know the way I, I've been talking to a lot of people and everyone you is having say, their... You're always their, talking to a lot of people. But everyone's having their bad COVID days. You know, you're trucking along, you're trying to get on with stuff and then all of a sudden you just kind of hit a wall. I, I've been finding this as well, and I'm kind of having one of those at the moment, where I'm just sick of COVID. I'm sick of all the shite around it. But And then the other thing as well is that when we went into lockdown first, as you were saying, back in March, we've been doing pretty good. You and I have been doing pretty good in the in the gym, you know, just trying to get fit and lose the bag and all that kind of stuff. Oh, the and bag then, is back, man. I, it's back. It's absolutely back. You know, oh, and then I, I, have... I went, I started going to the gym again. I'm all sore again. And now all the restrictions again, we have to give it up. So I'm just going to put on more weight. Maybe I should just I think, give it I think it. we should just compare Neds in the future. <laughs> yeah. uh, middle-aged men's Neds. No, but I know what you mean. I mean, the problem is that you're sick of COVID, but COVID is not sick of you. That's the thing. <laughs> you know? Now listen, I'll tell you who we're going to talk to now in two seconds. You remember my old mate, Paul McCulley. 
Paul, yeah, we did a few animations with Paul. He's great. Yeah, we did. He's, he's, he's a preacher Paul. Preacher Paul, but his dad was, his dad was yeah. a Baptist preacher and he has that, he has the gait, the accent and the delivery of a man who was really born to read Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Genesis. <laughs> From a pulpit. Absolutely. John, I can tell you ahead of time, Paul is, I would say, the best macroeconomist I have ever had the pleasure of working with and known over the years. He is a man who came up with the expression, the Minsky moment, the shadow banking system. He's the real deal. He is up there, in my view, and I've spoken uh, last time at Kilconomics to Krugman himself. He's, he's at that level of brilliance, wow. okay? On yeah. macroeconomics, on financial markets, on monetary policy, on fiscal policy, on the way in which public policy should work. He is, again, Krugman said something very interesting about McCulley. He said that PIMCO, which is the largest bond fund in the world, Paul was yeah. the chief economist and strategist. So he was making all the decisions for PIMCO right. okay. for 15 years, right? Which is an extraordinary, powerful position in financial markets. Paul left a couple of years ago. PIMCO's performance began to tank. Really? And again, interestingly, it was Krugman said in the New York Times that he could identify why PIMCO's performance began to tank because they didn't have McCulley as the chief brain of the operation. Wow. Which I think is very interesting. Now, so McCulley... What a compliment that is. Yeah, it is a compliment from the Nobel Prize winner. It Mm. really is. So let's talk to him. Paul McCulley has been an old mate for years. Paul, how are you? It's a real privilege to have you on the podcast. It's absolutely wonderful to hear your voice, David. And you're bringing back memories of a long time ago. We're getting older, my friend. We are certainly getting older, but they were good times. They were good times. And uh, you know the interesting thing, Paul, let's start with that 25 years ago. I want to talk about the Fed yesterday, the day before last week, but I want to do it in the context of the economics that people thought was gospel 25 years ago and the reality of now. And what has changed? And are we at a tipping point in the way we see economics and the way we change? Because in the old days, if you were printing money, you were having inflation. In the old days, if the government was spending money, it was crowding at the private sector. In the old days, if the fiscal deficit was getting big, you were going to have a current account problem and you'd be, in some way, people think, throwing money away. Now, the governments are doing all that and more and everybody is chilling out and not freaked out. I want to talk about that in a sec. But first, Paul, in the last week, Jay Powell, the head of the Fed, said that he thought using monetary policy in the banks to get money to small businesses was not the cleverest way to go. Explain what's going on. Chair Powell has said many, many things over the last couple months, and they're all in and around what I call a paradigm shift. The life that you and I have lived for the last 25 years as analysts is fundamentally changing because the paradigms are changing And essentially, we are merging the monetary authority and the physical authority. We're breaking down the church and state separation that you and I have lived our life worshiping in many respects. And essentially, on that point of getting money to the man on Main Street, particularly in small sizes, uh, Chair Powell was essentially saying that the plumbing system of the monetary authority really isn't suited for that. 
And what's more, that doing that endeavor of sending helicopter money to uh, the man on Main Street is a decision for elected officials under the umbrella of democracy. So he was not opposing doing that. He was simply saying that I'm the wrong plumbing system and two, I'm the wrong guy to make the decision to do that. That is the job of the congressional body, the physical authority. So he was in full agreement with the need to do it, but basically said to Congress, you do it. Okay, so Paul, this is this is interesting because here we have the head of the central bank, the Federal Reserve, and I'm also, I've got one eye on the European Central Bank, thinking along the same lines, not necessarily coming out and saying it, but what they're saying is, we are in a lockdown situation in Europe again. The United States might well go into a lockdown again very, very soon. As long as that is the case, small businesses have been ordered not to trade by the state. So bars and restaurants and hotels and these sort of guys, right? Now, unless you get money into their account, Paul, these people can't pay their creditors, the people they owe money to. And it seems that we're at a, an inflection point here. And how do you get money from the state to the little guy in order to prevent the little guy going bust and having a huge depression in the next couple of months? I think that's an excellent summary, David. That really is where we are. And I use the analogy that the pandemic puts us on war footing. It's not a war against an adversary uh, that's another country or another sovereign, but metaphorically, it is a war. And when you're at a war, then the power of the state by definition will ascend and including saying, shut down your economy. So the power of the state, which derives from the democratic process, is ordering the private sector or the capitalist sector, if you prefer, to stand down. And the private sector can do that. However, the consequence of it is going down the plug hole of serial bankruptcies and insolvency. So essentially the state has the power to say, we're at war and shut down, but if they don't do something to keep the private economy as a going concern, then not only do you have a war against the virus, you have a modern day depression, which actually feeds on itself. And I think that's an important point to make, David. It's not just a matter of a level adjustment associated with the economic fallout of the mandated shutdown. It becomes a recursive dynamic. You shut it down, you have X number of people who go broke, but the act of X going broke means that there will be a next iteration of Y going broke. So you have to have the state simultaneously with declaring a war to say, essentially, we will ensure with the power of the state and the power of fiat money that the private sector is a going concern on the other side. Okay, Paul, now let, let me come back to 
25 years ago, okay? Can the state right now, tomorrow morning, just print money? This is what people trying to get their hands around. You were the chief economist of PIMCO, the biggest bond fund in the world. The biggest bond fund in the world spends its time looking out for inflation, fearing inflation because of the relationship between inflation and bond prices. Can the European Central Bank or the Federal Reserve just simply print money today in order to prevent the bankruptcies that you worry about? The word you use simply is the tricky word in your question, David. Uh, They can't do it simply within our political architecture, but mechanically, yes, yes. Literally, all it would take is a simple act of Congress and for technocrats at the Fed to hit computer buttons. So mechanically, it is very easy to do what I'm suggesting and what you're suggesting. The political environment makes it less than simple, but mechanically, the short answer is yes, you can do it. So the central bank could basically add a zero to the account of every small business, or two zeros or three zeros. It could actually bequeath money to businesses that are now struggling. Now, a lot of people listening will say, well, hold on a second, you know, the economics I learned or even common sense or my, my, my feel for the world, Paul, says that if you do that, there has to be some sort of consequence. It can't be that easy. Well, there, there certainly are consequences of doing that. It redefines the relationship between capitalism and democracy, between the private sector and the public sector. So there are a whole host, a whole mosaic of consequences of doing that, but it can be mechanically done. Now, as a very practical matter, since citizens in the United States do not have checking accounts uh, or deposit accounts at the central bank, the central bank would have to do it through the commercial banking system. So it would have to be a, a bank shot, if you will. But at the conceptual level, yes, Uh, the central bank could credit the account with the bank shot of the citizenry of the country. And in fact, we've had some trial runs in doing that, uh, and particularly with what is known as the PPP program here in the United States, the Payroll Protection Plan, where essentially the central bank printed money and it showed up into the bank account of small business. Now, there were a lot of intermediary steps We don't need to go through those because those are wonky, technocratic sort of deal. Conceptually, the answer is yes. You can go directly from the computer that creates money at the Fed to the computer that holds the money of the citizenry as long as you have the enabling legislation. The Fed can't do it legally without Congress saying to do it, but with legal authority, they can do it through the plumbing system that we're operating with. Because, you see, I find this, Paul, really fascinating. Let's go, we were talking 25 years ago. Let's go right back to the 1930s. And let's go back to the Great Depression. And Roosevelt is sitting there in the White House. He's looking at 30% unemployment, mass bankruptcies, as you were a uh, suggestion, I think, where this is the debt deflation that uh, Irving Fisher spoke about. Exactly. And he says to himself, 
this gold standard thing, this is tying my hands when I really need to print money and get the American economy out of this. And in the face of huge opposition, both intellectual and commercial opposition for people who owned gold and owned assets, he said, you know what, we're going to take America off the gold standard. That will allow me to print as much money as I need. And in so doing, I think I'll be able to relaunch this economy. Are we talking about that type of moment, Paul? It's fascinating you bring up that history of 1933 because very few people fully understand what FDR did back then. People remember what he did on fiscal policy and the establishment of Social Security and deposit insurance and all of that sort of thing. But actually, FDR's first act was on monetary policy, not on fiscal policy, when he devalued the dollar against gold, because we had effectively outsourced the anchor of the system to gold. So he devalued the dollar against gold. And probably more powerful, he made private sector holding of gold illegal. So he didn't get the United States off the gold standard per se. He devalued the dollar against gold but also he effectively dramatically increased the gold supply available for backing expansion in the banking system by making it illegal for private citizens to hold it. So essentially what he was doing there was using the power of the printing press. The technical details really don't matter, but essentially what he did in sequence was to free up monetary space to create physical space to do what needed to be done. And I think that is a really good analogy for where we are right now, is that you remove the constraint, if you will, on monetary space. It's not gold like it was in 1933. It is legislation in various jurisdictions and also custom and general consensus understanding. So essentially, you suspend, for the lack of a better word, the doctrine of central bank independence. You free up the central bank to use its monopoly power to create legal tender. And then on the other side, you have your physical authority gin up the spending of that legal tender to Main Street. So what's going on right now philosophically is very, very similar to what happened in 33 details aside. Okay, Paul, let's let's just have a quick think. If this is not done, both in the United States and within the European Union, I mean through the Euro system uh, in terms of the European Central Bank, let's just keep these two major trading blocks in mind. What do you think a new lockdown will do to the economy? If the governments, because what, what, what I fear, Paul, is not really a lack of economics, but a lack of imagination when it comes to trying to figure out what is available. And against that background, sometimes those decisions are taken by technocrats who, as you and I know, 
don't necessarily wake up in the middle of the night worried about paying the bills or paying the rent. Right? They're, they're from a different mindset. Uh, if the governments don't appreciate the urgency of what is happening, what, what, what fear do you have? You've asked the most important question facing us right now in that monetary authorities, both here in Europe and around the world, get it. They fully, unambiguously get it and are essentially saying to physical authorities, you have unlimited space to do what is necessary to replace lost private sector income. And I think that's important. It's not stimulating the private sector. It is replacing lost private sector income because income, the continuity of income, is the substance of all private sector contracts. Uh, So the central banks get it. And the big question is whether or not fiscal authorities will use the latitude and freedom given to them by monetary authorities to do the right thing. And I hear, I have to say that I pull my hair out here in DC literally almost every day at the stupidity. That's the only word that comes to mind, the stupidity of our fiscal authorities not to do the obvious thing. It's not just the right thing, it is the obvious thing. And over where you are, I sense you're grappling with the same sort of lack of political willingness on the physical authorities, though I'm actually, and I haven't said this in a long time, more optimistic that the physical authorities in Europe will figure it out before we do here in the United States. And it should be a lot easier here in the United States because we genuinely have fiscal union, whereas in Europe, you're having to come to reality of the need for fiscal union in an emergency. But from my observation, you guys are doing a better job there than we are here. Granted, it's a really easy benchmark to beat looking at the United States. <laughs> well, listen, we can talk about the United States in two seconds. I just want just to finish this sort of more philosophical discussion about the, the power of economics when faced with a pandemic, okay? Uh, because I, I do feel that many people, particularly in small businesses, have been bullied by this notion that if you print money, you're going to get inflation. You can't give money away for free. Money doesn't grow on trees. All these expressions, Paul, that we were brought up with. You know, our mothers said these things. You know, money doesn't grow on trees. Be parsimonious. Save, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, mean I, th- I think you're putting your finger on a on, on a key issue here, and doing what needs to be done, which is the locked-in mindset of how money works and everything that your mother told you and you tell your children makes total sense because you are a currency user. You are not a currency issuer. Uh, Now, your daughter may think you are, but actually you can't (laughs) issue the currency. You have to go out and earn it. It would be illegal for you to go down into your cellar and print it out. So, 
I think most of us as citizens think in terms of the macro being the summing up of our micro constraints, that we can't do that at the national level because we can't do it at the household level without breaking the law and counterfeiting money and get arrested. Uh, And that is the mental cul-de-sac that everyone is in, is that while you as a household are a user of the country, collectively the country is a issuer if it's a sovereign country, and therefore it can do it and should do it. If they do too much of it for too long, yes, you will get a inflationary echo, but that's not the germane issue right now because we're not dealing with an inflationary problem. We're dealing with a deflationary problem. And if you take too much anti-deflationary medicine, you could end up with a inflationary hangover But that doesn't mean you shouldn't take the anti-deflationary medicine that the sovereign is a issuer. It has a monopoly over the fiat creation of money, unlike you and your household. And I think that is the conceptual leap that is so hard for people to make that the sovereign is not simply a summing up of the individual household constraints. Now, Paul, again, I mean, this this stuff goes to the root of the misunderstanding of money, the fact that people have inherited preconceptions and prejudices about money, but the idea that the issuer and the user are two different creatures is absolutely crucial to understand. And again, I tried to explain this on the podcast to many people that in actual fact, there is an alchemy in central banking and the alchemy is the following. The central bank can just make the stuff up if it needs to. Now, can I ask you about a situation of a country like Ireland, right? So Ireland's in a monetary union, okay? I don't think we really appreciate the extraordinary latitude you have when you're a tiny country in a big monetary union. So you've got a huge pool of savings to play around with if you so wish to. Can a government like the Irish government say, okay, look, I get what Macaulay is saying. I understand that we need to deposit money into the accounts of small businesses just for the next six months or 10 months or 12 months or whatever it happens to be in terms of the pandemic. However long the war lasts. Exactly, right? Okay, and, and, and so we don't govern what the war, how the war is going to basically pan out the disease and the medical community do, so we'll figure this out. But we have a problem, which is that we issue debt, IOUs in the Irish government's name, and then we bring those debt now really to the European Central Bank. I mean, it's pretending it's not doing this, but in effect it is, okay, because as you said, the monetary authority gets it. Can the Irish government indefinitely just print these IOUs, get the new money, put it into people's accounts, and actually assuage the anxiety of the people? The short answer is yes, David. And in fact, I think the European Central Bank is saying subtly, and they're always subtle, to do exactly that. And actually, I find it fascinating. It goes back to 25 years ago when you and I were studying these things in the run-up to monetary union in that 
through its creation and its lifetime, the answer was supposed to be no, that Ireland just can't simply, you know, put money into the citizenry's bank accounts, issue bonds, and then sell the bonds to the ECB, and everyone lives happily after you have this stability pack sort of notion and deficits as 3% of GDP and all of that stuff. But if my read, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, but my read of the current situation in this wartime-like footing is the ECB has effectively said that the stability pact is going to be suspended. Is that a fair read? Absolutely, that's an absolutely fair read. I mean, as I always said, I, I always say that basically what the Germans didn't realize is there's been an Italian coup d'etat at the ECB. The Italians have taken over the place. And uh, in effect, what has happened is the ECB has said, through Philip Lane, who's the Irish chief economist of the ECB, look, do what is necessary. We're looking the other way. You need to fix yourselves. We can't lend, but you can spend and we can facilitate that spend by basically giving you free money. That's what they've said. And in effect, the problem is I'm reading in Ireland now and all the journalists and lots of the economists are saying, oh, yes, well, if we borrow this money now, we'd all have to pay it back in the future. We'd have to have austerity next year. And yada, yada. they don't get that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that this pandemic has finally brought monetary and fiscal union uh, uh, to, uh, to, to Euroland. Because you had the monetary union without the fiscal union, and we know uh, what that begat uh, in various crises in the North versus the South and all of those sorts of things. So you are there, and looking at it from this perspective, I understand while your fellow neighbors there in Ireland would say, this sounds way too good, that yeah, the ECB is willing to let us distribute helicopter money and they will take our bonds in infinite amounts right now, but there's got to be a day of reckoning. And I understand that sort of issue because you look at the history of monetary union there in Euroland, and there have been lots of days of reckoning. So I think the next step conceptually for the ECB, and I'm not forecasting they're going to do this because it is not my field of expertise on the ground, the next step would be that the ECB would say to the member states, including Ireland, is that the bonds that we buy during this war period, however long it lasts, the bonds we buy from you, which allow you to distribute helicopter money, those bonds will have a de facto perpetual maturity, meaning they will never have to be paid back, that the ECB will pre-commit to rolling them over at maturity ad infinitum, uh, in which case, effectively, the helicopter money, the euros that are distributed within Ireland, which are perpetual, the notes that you carry in your pocket don't have a maturity date on them, would be on the other side of the ledger, a government bond, an Irish government bond with a de facto perpetual maturity sitting on the asset side 
of the ECB's balance sheet. That would complete the circle and reduce that rational concern that your citizens have that there is a day of reckoning because of effectively you're doing helicopter money and issuing de facto perpetual bonds, the day of reckoning is postponed into infinity, meaning there ain't no day of reckoning. That is a hallelujah moment for me. <laughs> that is a hallelujah moment. Now, Paul, I just want to ask you finally before we go, right? You were the chief economist of PIMCO when, when you and I parted companies back in the late 90s, although we've been friends ever since. People will listen and say, yeah, Paul, but what will the financial markets say if the ECB says these are perpetuals, you don't have to pay them back? There's always this fear of what we, we used to call the bond vigilantes, Paul, you remember? That the financial markets will penalize countries or currency unions that do something like this. What do you think? I mean, again, I'm coming from, you're under, you know, you're a deep financial markets guy. What do you think? I think the whole concept of a bond market vigilante is nonsensical in the current regime. The only reason it was sensible going back 25 years ago is essentially democratic governments delegated to the central bank the mission of being the disciplinarian in the system. And bond markets would front run central banks in that regime. So that's how the bond market vigilantes got their statue, is because they were front running central banks leaning against fiscal expansion, because we were fighting a war against inflation back in those days. So essentially, the bond market vigilantes looked at in today's environment are soldiers without trousers and guns without bayonets. That is a beautiful image upon which to end this discussion. Paul, listen, it has been an absolute pleasure. As always, listen, we'll be in touch anyway. Just a quick Quick word, American politics, you're four weeks out. What, how do you call it? I wish you would ask me an easy question, David. Um, <laughs> the easiest answer is that six months from now, Joe Biden will be president of the United States and that we will have re re restored a semblance of civility in our politics in America. And I only mention Joe because he'll be president, but actually the fundamental problem uh, with our politics is much bigger than who sits in the Oval Office. So I'm actually optimistic looking out six months, but the journey between here and there is very, very fraught with risk, existential risk in many respects, because it comes down to the integrity and our collective belief in the fundamental fairness of our democratic governing order. We truly have a autocrat uh, who wants to be dictator in the Oval Office. He will be unsuccessful in that endeavor, uh, but he can certainly create a huge amount of mischief, serious, serious mischief 
ripping at the fabric of our society between here and the exit door. The exit door will happen, but between here and the exit door is something that I, as a citizen, forget about me as an economist. I, as a citizen, have a great deal of worry about. Mr. Trump does not want to go gently into the good night, and that is going to be very unpleasant. But the reassuring note that I want to leave with you, David, is he will go into the good night. Paul, as always, an absolute pleasure. My pleasure, David. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Whoa, preacher Paul, straight off the pulpit there. He is, <laughs> He's amazing. He is the real. He is the real deal. He is the real deal. But come here, there's, like I got an awful lot of that stuff. But you, the two of you, nerding out there in economics, <laughs> so you need to decipher some of this for me. You see, okay? John, these are, these are the weirdos I hang out with. You know, when I'm not hanging out with you, I've <laughs> got this whole, I've got this whole subculture. It's like it's <laughs> it's it's like this kind of bunch of very very dodgy policy wonk mates. That we all we can sit around each other, you know, and, and chat. Can we, we go to our <laughs> nerd out? It's a, yeah, it's like economic patois, you know. It's like a certain sort of yeah. different language, and you know, a bunch I, of poindexters. Yeah, <laughs> as I said at the top, though, like you know, I turned up as a young economist years ago at UBS. He was my boss. He was the guy who set policy for the whole bank, light years ahead of the rest of us, and and I learned yeah. an enormous amount. And again, he's extraordinarily generous with his knowledge and his wisdom and he used to sit me down and say look this is the way this works all that stuff you learned in college he said he said even more all that stuff you learned in central banking because i thought i came from the holy of holies he says no no forget that this is actually the way the world works and in fact what he was talking there was kind of heretical to all the stuff that you would learn as a central banker which is that inflation always comes after the money supply is expanded that fiscal policy i.e the government and monetary policy central bank have to be separate this church and state idea and you know, people forget, I mean, but I'll tell the, the, the listeners, Paul McCulley came up with uh, the expression, the Minsky moment, which describes when oh. financial markets, it's his, financial markets oh, right. okay. collapse. 
He came up with the expression shadow banking, the shadow banking system, which was basically he was the one who identified that there was the banks in the U.S. Uh, before the 2008 crisis, and there were the shadow banks, which were kind of things like the banking system, that they were lending money into the system, but they weren't officially banks. He steered PIMCO. I mean, as I always, we always joke, you know, I left uh, UBS uh, and uh, he left around the same time. He went on to become the chief uh, economist of PIMCO and on the board of PIMCO, the biggest bond fund. And I decided to be a, a journalist and a storyteller, yeah. <laughs> making documentaries and writing. You were fired, right? You? But we were all fired. The whole thing, the whole thing imploded. <laughs> no, I was fired from the next one. That was a disaster. And the reason that was, the reason that was, was I actually went to a place called BMP, you know, BMP Paribas. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you a story. Because I'd done a lot of this work in emerging markets and because I'd actually gone to Russia. You remember the years ago I went to Russia to learn Russian and all that. I do, yeah. And I was into all that malarkey. And I had been doing a lot of emerging market stuff at, at UBS and at BNP I started. So that was fine. And I worked with a really interesting bunch of guys who were French, but French Serbs. Their parents were Serbs. And they were really, really good at Slavic languages. They understood the Slavic world very, very well. Yada, yeah. yada, yada. But I can tell you, on the 16th of August in <laughs> 1998, it remains Jeez. etched on my memory. I am in a in the scratcher in Paris in a hotel room. And I'm about to go Sound in. dodgy, Mike. No, it's not dodgy at all. I'm about to go in the next day to the board of BMP and explain the position we have in Russia. So we had taken these very, very large positions in Russia. And we had what's called shorted the position. So we'd sold everything about a week prior right. to that. So I had gone on a client trip to Russia, uh, organized by a large bank that will remain nameless, Goldman Sachs. And it had, <laughs> um, it was an IMF trip, right? And I remember sitting on the plane and realizing this is nothing to do with economics. It was more to do with a feeling about what was happening in Russia in 1998, that the more money the IMF was giving to the Russians, the more the Russians were trousering, pretending they were using for economic reasons. This was during, right, this okay. was during the end of the Yeltsin kleptocracy. And yeah. I remember coming back and I said to the chief trader at the time, a guy called Goran, typical Serb name, I said, look, this isn't an economics, it's a hunch that basically they're using the IMF money to... There's a thing in Russia called the Potemkin village. Have you ever heard of that, John? Okay. No, we don't so, think so. So Potemkin was Catherine the Great's lover, General Potemkin, right? Ooh, right. And okay. General Potemkin, so the Potemkin village is a Russian thing, right? And in the summer of 1707, I bring you back a wee bit, right? Yes. All the ambassadors of Britain, of France, of all the big nations came yeah. to Russia and Catherine the Great took them on a barge trip down the Dnieper, the river, to Ukraine to show them the extraordinary gratitude the Ukrainian people had for having been conquered by the Russians. The Russians had just conquered Ukraine for the first right. time. Right, okay. Yeah. And yeah. the idea was that they would show, the Russians would reveal that all these peasants, these liberated peasants, were in total gratitude from the Russians having liberated them from their own local oppressors. And this was about right. Russian dominant, but Russia wasn't an occupier, Russia was a liberator, right? Now, the Dnieper, if you know, if you look at the river, it's a huge, huge river, bends quite a lot, massive, massive river, yeah. goes down, basically down the spine of Russia into the Ukraine. Potemkin villages were what Potemkin had done, right, which is amazing, right? He made makeshift villages 
pretend villages with pretend actor peasants in them, right? And every time, right. every time the royal barge came to the bend, right, they'd see this village, and all the villagers would be sort of waving at Catherine the Great. Hollywood saying, style. Hollywood style. This is right, right, <laughs> right. And then as the barge would go slowly, right, and they parked the barge, and the Russians would slow it down, they packed up the village and fucked around to the next bend in the river. <laughs> This is all true, man, right? And it's called That's brilliant. And it's called Potemkin villages, or Pachumkin, as the Russians would pronounce it, villages. And it's the way in which Russia has always tried to obscure reality, tried to deceive the West. I mean, Putin is doing it all the time, right? It's a Russian right, yeah. thing. <laughs> it's called the Potemkin village approach to deceiving your enemy. So what happened was after that is all the French and the British and, and you know, all this, the Swedes and all those ambassadors went back to the capitals of Western Europe to say, yeah. the Russians, everyone loves them. The Ukrainians love them. There's no problem. Don't believe this yeah, propaganda yeah, 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 that they're yeah. actually killing Ukrainians. They all love them, right? So it was all a big fraud. And I'd been aware of that for years, studying Russian history and culture and all that malarkey. And I remember the IMF was a massive Potemkin village, right? I came away thinking, the Russians are doing the same thing. They're window dressing reality. They're taking right. the IMF's money, right? They're trousering it for themselves, Yeltsin's cronies, and the whole thing's going to crash. And I went back to Goran and he said, are you sure? I said, I'm not sure, but it's a hunch I have. So we went from having what's called a long position, John, which just means you, you're actually, you've bought Russian bonds, to having a short right. position, which means you actually sell Russian bonds, right? And you sell them into the future, right? So these, these are kind of long and short contracts. Right. So we were positioned extremely well to take advantage of what happened on the 16th of August, 1998, which was that Russia defaulted, devalued, and de-everythinged. They'd murdered them. They said that we weren't... So they did exactly as we thought they were going to do, right? Problem was, we had the contracts that we had actually signed, the counterparties on the other side of the deals were Russian banks that we'd signed the contracts with. And one by one, they all went bust. So we had the macro position right, but the micro position was that the Russians never actually did the deals that they said they would do, and all the banks went bust. So consequently, our position was completely bust. Right, jeez. And that morning, I had to go in to a guy called Pebro, who was the head of BMP in their massive, massive French office in in Boulevard Houseman in Paris, and explain <laughs> what was going on. So that's... And How that, did that go down? Very badly. In, in brutal French as well. Can you imagine? Probably do it in French. Right? Oh, Jesus. Or kind of half French, half English. But the problem was that... Were you marched off the premises? More or less, yeah. We were, you know, it was... It was you, you just sometimes when you're a dead man, you know it, you know? When the guillotine yeah, has yeah, been yeah, sharpened. Yeah. And uh, it's a very strange thing, actually. And people will, who've ever been fired or isolated in the company will know that, is that you actually become toxic and people won't speak to you and people get very, very cowardly, right? So people then, everyone starts to try and pretend they don't know you, they weren't part of your team, your decision-making, they try to isolate you. Not, not just me, just me and that team in particular. Yeah. And it's an interesting it's an interesting insight into human behavior as to when you become a persona non grata, you really know who has a spine and who doesn't. And the vast right. majority of people, that's, John, unfortunately, don't have fucking spines. Yeah, that's very often the case. You know? yeah. And I do remember it. So that's why we all ended up. So while, while I was walking the plank, right, 
Paul McCulley yeah. had abandoned and gone to California. So while I was in fucking Ukraine, <laughs> being deceived, Paul McCulley went to California to, uh, I think it's called, where does he live? Palm Beach, Long Beach. It's one of those beaches. Yeah, like uh, one of the fancy ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he went, to, his career took off and I came back with my tail between my legs going, Jays, what are we going to do now? <laughs> so that's the background. <laughs> that's a fantastic story, Max. That's cool, really good. So what I need to kind of understand a little bit more is, first of all, let me get this straight. Fiscal policy is how government spends money, essentially. A yes. monetary policy is all about the supply of money. Yes. So to date, fiscal and monetary policy have always been separate, like the separation of church and state. You know, obviously, that was for a reason. So what's the downsides? What, what, are the, what should we be concerned about now that they're becoming more... What did Paul call it? A war footing. Yeah, yeah. Well, before the war, there is the armistice, right? Right, okay. So <laughs> the first thing to say is like, so imagine fiscal policy and monetary policy. Imagine a boxer, right? A boxer yeah. boxes with both hands. You have the right and the left, right? The jab and the hook. So imagine that's the same way in economics. Right? We're experts at this. Yes, exactly. Because the two of us have fought our way around chip shops <laughs> all around Dunleary over many years. <laughs> I meant with Neil. <laughs> anyway, so, so imagine that, right? So one arm is fiscal policy and one arm is monetary policy, right? And when they're working together, they should work extremely well, which is the following. Mm. So for example, the central bank issues the money, prints the money, and the government and the private sector should avail of that money to do what they will. Yeah. In great times, in really good times, when the government, for example, wants to do something, let's say wants to build, let's say a, a housing project, right? So a big housing project like in Dublin, for example, and we want to build 10,000 houses and we want to build state houses. What the government mm. will do is the government will go to the central bank, it'll give the central bank IOUs, i.e. the government bond we spoke about, the central bank gives it money. So the central bank facilitates the government in doing what it wants to do. And in the United States, this is very much the case because in the United States, the Fed and the Treasury are arms of the government. Now, what has yeah. happened in Europe over the years is that because largely Germany has always feared that governments will spend too much money and they will force the central banks to print too much money and you'll get hyperinflation, there has been this separation of church and state, which okay, is that the right. central bank leans against the government if the government has these big expansionary ideas about change in society. Why? Because the central bank is obsessed about inflation. So the thing to really look about is the inflation rate. That's what the central bank is obsessed about. And the reason okay. it's obsessed about this inflation rate is if inflation increases dramatically, John, the currency of that country will depreciate and what you will get yeah. is instability, political and social and economic instability. Right, so that's the thing. And so the separation of church and state is made legislatively clear in Europe where the central bank, ECB, is actually separate to, and it's a separate institution, to European governments. In the United States, it's less legislation and more practice. So okay. then you think, right. But always remember, John, that the key thing we're worried about is inflation. So over the last five or six years, infl inflation has almost disappeared worldwide. 
And right yeah. now, what we're looking at is deflation. It's falling prices, right? So consequently, the answer to deflation is always inflation, in the same yeah. way as the answer to inflation is deflation, the solution. So yeah. what, what Paul and myself have been thinking about for quite some time is that the old economic way of looking at the world, this separation of church and state, the fact that the central bank can't print money, the fact that the state has to be totally different, that's all very well in peacetime, okay? When there's nothing yeah. really going on. But in a war where you have a COVID-inspired collapse of the economy, I believe the central bank and the government are obliged to act in tandem, to come together, as we were talking about, and then you get to say, well, what's the best way to come together? At the moment that the central bank is saying, we will print as much money as possible, we will give that money to the banks, and then the banks can actually give that to small businesses. But the sure. problem is that that is predicated on the idea that small businesses take out a loan. But who's going to take out a loan in these times? Nobody. Because if you don't yeah. even know what's going to go, go on tomorrow, the chances yeah. of taking... Yeah. So, what we both believe is that the central bank should actually dispense with this idea of using the banking system. And when I say dispense with it, not wait until people go to the bank and apply for a loan, yeah. that they should actually just deposit money in people's accounts using the banking system. And the, the idea comes from Milton Friedman, who said that at a certain right. stage during a Great Depression, okay, so Milton Friedman's big insight was that the Great Depression was a monetary phenomenon and nothing more, nothing less. And he says, at a time when the demand for money is zero, when there's loads of money supplied, but people don't want to take out money, what you do is you just give them the stuff. Now, you can do that if the rate of interest is zero, because it means the cost of money is zero. So it yeah, means when you yeah. actually borrow at zero. So that's what we're talking about. And it's, uh, it's very, this is deep economic logic. But you know what's really interesting, John, is that it's the way in which that mantras replace hard thinking in every pursuit. So the mantra now is you cannot do this when we actually know yeah. you can. And it's amazing how many intelligent people hold dear mm -hmm. to ideas way after those ideas have lost their sell-by date because they've built their career on those ideas. So I'm talking about economic yeah. departments, academics, central bankers, columnists, eh, public economists, if there are such things, private sector economists, you know, finance sure. people, they hold on to ideas stupidly. You know this idea of the general fighting the last war? That's yeah, why. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, the reason there was such slaughter in the Western Front in 1916 was that they were deploying the tactics of the Boer War and previous yeah. wars against technology that had changed completely. So the generals were fighting the last war, and what happened was millions and millions of men were slaughtered. It's the same idea. Yeah, it's, but I mean, people in general are afraid of change. And what Paul was was talking about as well, and, and you mentioned it before, was that what's happening now during COVID and monetary and fiscal policy coming together is that it could bring about a profound change in the entire economy and global economy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the changes will be very political as well. So people are, you know, understandably... A bit concerned about that. They are, they are. I mean, the, the funniest thing, what we're talking about, John, is going against conventional wisdom. And Galbraith, the yeah. great Canadian economist, said one thing about the conventional man. He said the conventional man is the most dangerous man 
in the world. And the vast majority of the economic profession is made up of conventional men. And he, he described it once, he said, when faced with the choice between changing his mind and finding the proof not to do so, the conventional yes. man always gets busy looking for the proof. So rather yes. than saying, look, the world has changed, we're going into a depression, that depression is government sanctioned because the government has actually closed down big sectors of the economy. Sure. If you do that, you have a responsibility to actually make sure that those bits of the economy are alive when you choose or when COVID gives you the permission to open back up. So we're not talking about normal times. We're talking about abnormal times. And in abnormal yeah. times, you've got to do abnormal things. And, and I believe as we go into the second lockdown, it looks pretty much that we're doing this now in Ireland. It looks more or less is going to be the case around Europe, around the Eurozone, probably the case in the United States. What are we going to do about it? You know, it's all very well saying, you know, we're going to lock down because of COVID. But the businesses that you elect to close yeah. and you instruct to close down need to be protected. And the beautiful thing about economics is we can do it. It can be done. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, you know, we've learned so much about the COVID virus and how it spreads and how it's working. So we do need to come up with a new plan, new strategy. Yeah, and, 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 it's, and, and John, it's, it's there in front of our eyes, right? Which is what you do is you use the central bank at zero interest rates to fund the private sector that you have instructed to close, right? Through no fault of their own. And that's what you do. Yeah. And what Paul was talking about, you might have heard him talk about perpetual bonds there. Yes. So perpetual bonds, John, are bonds that do not need to be paid back. It's a beautiful thing, right? Uh, and I'll tell you, the reason they're important is, for example, slavery was abolished using perpetual bonds. That basically the British yes. government realized that it's kind of crazy that they had to actually compensate slave owners for the liberation of slaves because slaves were an asset. And the slave owners were all in the House of Lords, or their mates were in the House of Lords. So what the British yeah. government did is they, they issued perpetual bonds, which are bonds that yield maybe 2 or 3%, but they're never paid back. So they just keep going on and on. The Dutch financed all, it's a Dutch idea, they financed all their dikes and polders with this in the 17th century. In fact, certain people are still getting paid Dutch perpetual bonds that were actually financed Dutch no way, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's amazing. You can turn up in Holland if you have that piece of paper from the 17th century and you can demand your money back. Or you can demand... Oh, to get, brilliant. Yeah, you can demand to get paid in guilders in the old Dutch currency, right? It is amazing, right? So yeah. all these things can be done. So, so, Mac, okay, so if this kind of monetary policy works so well, why are we only kind of utilising it now? Ah, well, this why is, haven't we done it before? There's three issues here. One is that lenders of money have always mm. demanded a, an interest rate which is above the prevailing rate of interest, right? Normally, the rate of interest has been in the past between 4 and 5%. So yeah. clearly, you'd have to offer a rate of interest which is higher than that. But now that rates of interest okay. are 0%, if you offer a perpetual paying 1%, somebody's going to take it up because it actually pays you something. So it's better than having right. a deposit in the bank. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is the reason we haven't done it for so so long. Again, the Brits fought the First World War using a hundred-year bonds. I mean, you know, is that we haven't faced these crises and we haven't used our collective imagination in the same way. 
And the third thing, again, is just inertia, John. It's people say, well, that can't be done. You know, how can you possibly do that? Bonds have to be right. paid back. Well, in actual fact, in, in most times, yes, they do. But in actual fact, if you can give somebody a stream of income of 1% or 2%, right, what actually, if you look at it, all government debt is rarely paid back. It's always rolled over. It's a big myth right. that Ireland actually pays its debt. We don't. What we do is we swap old debt for new debt and we start again, right? That's right, how the whole okay. thing works. I mean, it is a big myth that, you know, at some stage you arrive up, somebody arrives from the Irish government with a big bag and gives it to the investor. That's yeah. not how it works. It's these, uh, what, what did you call it, the Russian villages? What did the you Potemkin call villages. The Potemkin yeah. villages. you got to, you got to Google Potemkin, man. He was also Catherine the Great's lover. And she was a very partial, she was a lady who was believed to be attracted to horses at a certain level. But that's, uh, I think, an urban myth. Jesus. It's true. It's the truth, man. I read an amazing book about Catherine the Great not that long ago. She was the most extraordinary character. She was German. This is what people forget. Yeah. That basically Germany was like an aristocratic stud farm in the 17th <laughs> century and 18th century, right? For mares and studs, yeah. right? But... They used to go to Germany. Germany was like a stud farm and they'd pick up these mares, these sort of well-gotten German princesses and marry them all off. So like, it's extraordinary. It was like an aristocratic stud farm. It was like, you know, that, that, that place down in the Curra that they have for all the mares are. And yeah, uh, Catherine yeah, yeah. the Great was one of them. And she made it's Russia one of this. It's a different type of colonialism, isn't it? It's a very different, yeah. It's kind of keeping the family colonialism. Yeah. Uh, but it's very interesting. And of course, she was the one that, that exported Germans to the Volga down in Ukraine and then the Volga down further, even further east, and, and Volga Germans. You might remember Gabriela Heinze, who was a left back for Man United about Sorry, 10 years ago. To me. Argentinian right. geezer, right? Gabriela Heinze was a Volga German, right? And the Volga Germans re-emigrated to Argentina in the late 19th century, but they were originally colonizers sent by Catherine the Great to teach the Russians how to farm because the Russians were too chaotic. So they sent Germans there. Oh, mad stuff. The shite you learn in this podcast. But actually, seriously, if you are in professional services and if your career is affected by CPD points and you need CPD points or you want CPD points, why don't you use our course as part of that? Again, our courses now are CPD accredited, which means you'll get points, you'll learn economics and you will add to your career progression. So again, have a look at this, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Look for the CPD points and we can learn economics together. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.